0: I'm Nikandro Yanachi, web content strategist at the National Constitution Center. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. On today's show, we travel to Aspen, Colorado, home of the annual Aspen Ideas Festival. Jeff spent the last week there hosting several programs on constitutional issues including the one you are about to hear. It was without a doubt an exciting and unpredictable year at the Supreme Court with the sudden passing of Justice Antonin Scalia and several important rulings or non-rulings on hot-button issues. In Aspen, Jeff was joined by several leading Supreme Court observers to review the term. All of the speakers have previously been guests on We the People, or speakers here at the Center in
1: Philadelphia. Here's Jeff to get us started. It is now my great pleasure, ladies and gentlemen, to introduce one, two, three, four, five of the greatest court watchers and scholars of the Constitution in the United States. And I will do that uh, with uh, alacrity. Larry Lessig, professor at Harvard Law School, cyber guru, foe of corruption, constitutional prophet, Uh, and my law school teacher. uh, (laughs) Jeff Stone, University of Chicago, America's leading First Amendment defender. You've heard him uh, in every venue here on the First Amendment on privacy. He's talking about marriage equality later and the professor of Senator Klobuchar. (laughs) Nina Totenberg, the best and most well-known legal commentator in America. Judge Nancy Gertner, now of Harvard Law School, heroic civil libertarian whose work Uh, on behalf of free speech and equality has inspired me and many others. And finally, uh, Neil Katyal, former acting Solicitor General of the United States, Supreme Court advocate, professor at Georgetown Law School, and most importantly, my brother-in-law, and those of you who have been here before, those of you who were at the Deep Dive last year, know that Neil and I are determined to go on the road with a show that's going to be the schoolhouse rock for the 21st century called Brothers in Law. <laughs> and it's going to be great. Talk to us afterward if you want to support this important educational effort. Okay, we're going to jump right in. Uh, Nina, you heard Senator Klobuchar talk about the Garland confirmation. You've been covering it, of course, uh, uh, superbly, what were your thoughts on what the senator said, and what do you think his prospects for confirmation really are?
2: Well, actually, I think this senator, that the Secretary Clinton, has said what she would do about a lame duck vote. She said she would not ask uh, President Obama to wait or to withdraw the nomination. So I think we're, Obama is sticking with the nomination through the time he's president, and certainly there's enough time in the lame duck to confirm him because these days no, the Senate never goes into recess because then the president might be able to do something. And so, <laughs> so whether they're technically there or not, there could be a hearing. My view is that the probabilities are that there will be a hearing if Hillary Clinton wins and if, certainly if the Democrats take the Senate. Uh, Mrs. Clinton has been very um, obtuse about what she would do herself if uh, Judge Garland is not confirmed by the time she were to become president. And I think it's anybody's guess, but likely she probably wouldn't stick with him. Uh, He's 63 years old. I don't know when he turns 64. He's a moderate liberal with the stress on the moderate. He's more probably more to the right on most issues than uh, the liberals on the court now, closer to Breyer than any other person on the court. Uh, On the other hand, do you really want to start out a new administration with a big fight? Uh, And that's that's the calculus I think that she would have to make. But in the last analysis, if he's not confirmed in the lame duck, we're not gonna get anybody confirmed in time to really participate in the next term because there has to be a hearing, let's say hearing in nomination in February, hearing in March, maybe the person gets there by April. If there's not a big fight, that's a big if. Uh, and by the end of April, all the all the cases have been argued. So you're, you've lost another year. Absolutely fascinating.
1: Uh, Neil, uh, the senator said that Judge Garland might be part of a centrist block on the court Uh, perhaps joined by Justice Kagan, Justice Breyer, for whom you clerked, the Chief Justice, Justice Kennedy. Um, Is there a possibility for a Garland court that would actually reach consensus decisions Or do you believe, as some have suggested, that this is a polarized court of five Republicans against four Democrats and that it's all politics?
3: Yeah, I do think that there's a lot of misinformation about the court and those of us who regularly appear before it really have a different perspective than I think many people. So just to take one locus for conventional wisdom, Stephen Carter, Yale Law School professor two days ago, told an audience here the following, quote, there's an enormous predictability to these voting blocks and there are lawyers who will tell you how frustrating it is to get up in front of a court where seven or eight justices have already made up their mind. What you've seen in the court over the last two decades is a loss of any sense among the justices themselves that consensus is important. And that's you know just wrong. Um, so half of the cases just this last term were decided unanimously two years ago it was two-thirds of all the cases decided unanimously you'd have to go back to 1940 to find another year in which that was the, that in which that happened the Chief Justice at his confirmation hearings spoke about the need to try and bring the court together <laughs> Justice Breyer said similar things and you know these are unimportant cases it's not you know not every case of course abortion affirmative action there's going to be divisions but things like reversing Governor McDonald's conviction or whether we have privacy in our smartphones. These are unanimous cases that the Supreme Court's deciding. And in addition, the Supreme Court, particularly this term, totally unusual lineups. I mean, we could go through case after case of which Sotomayor and the Chief Justice are dissenting against Elena Kagan. Um, You know, all sorts of interesting things going on. So, you know, when we talk about the big cases, which obviously we'll do, just remember there's a lot of stuff that's going on at the court that isn't, uh, that isn't susceptible to that same kind of predictable left-right split. Judge Garland, I do think would be a moderate. Um, I think Nina's absolutely right that in some things, like criminal justice, he'll actually move the court in a more conservative direction because Justice Scalia, and again, this is something that I think people don't always realize, Justice Scalia moved the court to the left on criminal procedure issues.
1: Uh, Larry, you clerked for Justice Scalia. You're famously uh, held the liberal clerk seat designed to challenge uh, the justice. Uh, and you did such a great job in, in swaying him on <laughs> so many issues during that term. <laughs> but describe his unique role on the court since his passing. Justice Thomas has been speaking more, the court's been searching once. for more consensus. Once. He, he spoke once and he wrote a very interesting. Uh, dissent, (laughs) reflecting his concerns, really fascinating gun control uh, uh, dissent that I want all of you to read. And the homework for this panel, by the way, you've got a lot of of law professors on the panel. Your assignment is to read a Supreme Court opinion after it's over. Read the majority, read the dissent, and make up your mind. And you can pick which one you choose after the discussion. But Larry, describe his unique role in the court, what his legacy will be, and what you think the effect of a Justice Garland replacing him would
4: be? Well, I think it's important to recognize Scalia had a long career. And who Justice Scalia was at the beginning of his career I think is different from who Justice Scalia was at the end of his career. So after he passed, um, and he was an incredibly important person to me, I I felt very personally close to him, and I admired him greatly, um, although I disagreed with him fundamentally. Um, but I, when I clerked uh, with him, as I wrote in a bunch of things after he died, um, what was most striking to me were the number of times when there was a conflict between what the conservative would do and what the originalist would do. And every time there was that conflict when I was clerking with him and I would hold that conflict up before him, he would do what the originalist would do. Um, now, the last time I saw him, I had lunch with him um, I think it was about six months before he died. Um, I said to him he had ruined me as a constitutional law professor. I said, I felt like Linus waiting for the great pumpkin all the time because I said, when I started my career, I had this real belief in you doing the the originalist thing, even when it conflicted with the conservative thing. And I said, time after time, I've been proven wrong because you've done the conservative thing instead of the originalist thing. Um, and then we had a long conversation about campaign finance, which was the one thing that I was really frustrated about. But I think this marks the fact that there's no such thing as Justice Scalia. There's Justice Scalia's. Um, and and uh, I still admire the person who could be brought back to a principle, whether you agree with the principle or not. He could be brought back to the principle and held to it if the right you know, forces were there to do it. And um, I'm not convinced that's who he
1: was for his whole career. I had the privilege of a dinner with him where I asked him about what he would do about Brown versus Board of Education, which was hard to justify on originalist grounds, and he thought for a bit and then threw back his head and laughed and said, you know what, no, one's perfect. So <laughs> uh, what was his response when you, when you challenged him right before he died on that?
4: He was the old Justice Scalia, uh, in the sense that I, I challenged him to what I thought the originalist should do, as distinct from what the conservative was doing. And by the end of the lunch, he was like, you know, you might be right. You might be right. Um, and he laughed. Uh, he'd had a lot of wine by the end of the lunch, so I'm not sure <laughs>
2: <laughs> how much that would have
4: stuck, but that's where it was.
1: That's great.
2: All right, we need to, we need, go ahead. One of his charms, really, as a, as a person, was that if you weren't personal about it, he loved it when you gave as good as you got. He really liked that. And he respected you for it and would sort of, you know, you on the shoulder or whatever. He might not. You know, I knew him best in the last uh, 20 years of his life. And I would say the last five or seven were the least like the first five or seven I knew. And, uh, but it was a, a great gift to me that I was able to have um, a relationship with him, a friendship with him.
1: That's great we need to talk about these blockbuster cases. Abortion, affirmative action, immigration, and maybe contraception, at least two of them. Abortion and affirmative action were surprises to some uh, in that Justice Kennedy voted more liberally than some expected, most notably affirmative action where he had not previously voted to uphold an affirmative action program, and in fact uh, uh, joined quite a liberal decision by Justice Breyer, seeming to say that university affirmative action was safe. Uh, Nancy, do you want to channel Justice Kennedy here? What do you think changed his mind?
5: I, I think um, uh, let me let me start with the, Justice Kennedy in the in um, uh, joining the abortion case because uh, I had followed his arguments, his comments during oral argument, and as I said in the setting before, uh, what the significance of the abortion case was that uh, there was finally a sense of an abortion regulation that was a bridge too far. In other words, and I said this before, the, the bridge too far in the past, for the past 20 years, was making abortions criminal. You, that was the only end point that we knew, which is that since 1992, Roe v. Wade was not gonna be reversed, and so it wasn't gonna become criminal. But every manner and means of restriction had been affirmed over the course of the year and over the course of the years. And one of the things that you saw in Kennedy's questionings during the argument in the case was uh, finally skepticism about a regulation, finally a sense that when you're talking about pre-viability abortions, that the state can't intone maternal health even when all the regulations had nothing to do with maternal health, and even he was pushed to say if this, law, if, this, if this right is to be meaningful, this really was a bridge too far. Uh, that, whether that wiped out his decisions in other cases, which were dealing with uh, partial birth abortion in the third trimester, those kinds of issues in which he had been famously very dismissive of women's rights. Uh, still, this set of facts was finally, if you believed in this right, this was a bridge too far uh, I wonder with the affirmative action case whether that was really uh, the search for consensus that Neil was talking about more than anything else, um, uh, you know, that this was uh, uh, also just the, the sense that, um, uh, that there had to be uh, some limit to, to the restrictions on affirmative action, but I have less of a sense of why he switched in that case.
1: Jeff, your take on Justice Kennedy in affirmative action, the significance of the decision, and the broad observation, as Adam Liptak noted in his roundup, that this is a court that was moving in a liberal direction. Why was that happening?
6: So in the affirmative action case, I think that um, Kennedy uh, saved, uh, at least for the moment, the possibility of affirmative action. I think that that case could easily have come out where the court essentially finally said affirmative action is unconstitutional, period. And I think four of the justices uh, could easily have gone that way had Scalia not passed and, it, and so on. So that was really at stake in this case. Um, that happily did not happen. I think that would have been a disaster. As for, as for Kennedy's votes once Justice Scalia was gone, um, I think he didn't want to be in that position. Um, he could have let it be a 4 4 split and it would have been left to the future, but the future was likely to be a court with Judge Garland on it or some other Democratic nominee. Um, And this gave Kennedy the opportunity to be the defining um, thinker about the question at this moment. Um, And so my guess is that sort of moved him. I also think Kennedy's always hedged on affirmative action. He's never been completely comfortable with the idea that 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 it's per se unconstitutional. Um, if I could also, by the way, make a couple of comments about a few of the other statements that have been made. Um, with respect to Nina's uh, point about uh, what happens with uh, the Garland nomination, um, I actually would be not surprised but disappointed if um, Obama and Clinton uh, allow the Garland nomination to remain in effect past the election. I mean, my view is what the Republicans are doing is completely unconscionable that Obama nominated Garland uh, as a sop to the Republicans, uh, very moderate, very old for a nominee, something he never would have done under other circumstances, although I I think very highly of of Merrick Garland. He would not have been Obama's nominee otherwise. And it was kind of, uh, here, let's compromise on this, and we'll go ahead and move forward. And they reject that compromise, and now the game they're playing is heads I win, tails you lose. Basically, if Trump gets elected, then he gets to appoint the nominee. If um, Clinton gets appointed, then okay, we'll take Garland, who's the absolutely best possible scenario we could ever have had. I don't think the Democrats should allow the Republicans to play that game. And I think what they should do is basically say, if you don't confirm Garland by September 15th or October 1st, then he's withdrawn. And that Hillary then appoints a 34-year-old William O. Douglas. (laughs)
5: <laughs> well, they're not going to do that. Right. We were going to ne- propose ne- Amy Klobuchar, actually, but that's another Amy's discussion. Amy's vice president. <laughs>
1: Neil, I want you to jump in on this, uh, on, on Garland, on Kennedy, but also tell us about the unique challenges faced by Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, as you know well, the chief's main power is the power to assign the majority opinion when he's in the majority. Uh, Or Assign it to the judge who best reflects his views when he's in the minority then the senior associate justice in the majority right now Justice Ginsburg writes the opinion or assigns it to the one she reflects her views if uh, Hillary Clinton were to win Chief Justice Roberts faces the choice of being the only chief as far as I can tell Really for the first time in history who wouldn't reliably be assigning majority opinions unless he decides to compromise and go over to the left. What do you think he'll do, and what
3: uh, should he do? Okay, so taking these in order, first of all, with with Judge Garland, I I, I think, I I severely doubt that uh, Judge Garland wouldn't be the nominee if Hillary Clinton wins, and that's just because you know, he is on paper, and the President has said it, the most qualified nominee ever in the history of the United States Supreme Court. So it's a little hard, I think, to walk back from that. Um, And it's particularly hard because if Secretary Clinton wins, we all know that she's going to, you know, this isn't her only Supreme Court fight. So she's going to have the fights that are going to occur on January 20th about the cabinet, but then she's going to have over the next four years, at least, you know, I think we can suspect two more additional nominations. And to start out by dumping the person who everyone says is so amazing, just strikes me as probably not the place where uh, where the new president would start. Um, with respect to Justice Kennedy and affirmative action, I think the most important thing, and this picks up on your question about the chief, Justice Kennedy was in the majority in 98% of the opinions this term. And he's done that almost every term for the last several. Last year, for the first year, Justice Breyer beat him out, being in the majority 95% of the time. But it is very much Justice Kennedy's court. In affirmative action, you can't understand affirmative action without understanding 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 that he played the key role there were only seven justices hearing the case not eight So there would have never been a tied vote because Elena Kagan was recused He did something remarkable something that many people have been fighting for for 20 years Which is to say affirmative action should be upheld if it's done in the right way for the first time He wrote an opinion that did that Um, And now the question is why did he do it? And I think a good part of it has to do with Justice Breyer's kind of long-term campaign you know, when I was clerk for him, you know, his colleagues would say the meanest things about him in print, and he would just always look the other way. And we, as clerks, would always be like, no, you should be more like Justice Scalia, you know, and, you know, give it back to him. Always turn the other cheek, quiet, persuasive, playing the
2: long game. He I learned, think- you know, he learned that skill as counsel for the Judiciary Committee under Kennedy. And he said, when I interviewed him at, when Kennedy died, that, that was the, the, that, that was the greatest thing he learned, was, was that there are plenty of people, give all the credit you can, give it to lots of people, because there's plenty of credit to go around if you win and none if you lose.
3: So I've talked too much, so maybe I'll, someone
1: else well, can do the Chief Justice I, I, question? I teed up the Chief, uh, so your thoughts and then I'll ask the others.
3: So I, I do think that uh, the, chief, uh, the chief is an unusual um, uh, person. I think during his confirmation hearings, a lot of people on the left said this guy has never, ever voted um, for a liberal cause ever. We now know that that was really a pretty bad prediction given that he's twice voted uh, to save the Affordable Care Act, uh, and so on. So I do suspect that what would happen if uh, Secretary Clinton won, and we could get any nominee through, um, is that uh, we would see the Chief Justice moving a bit more to the center of the court. So, in in, in fact,
5: when you talk about Scalia, I mean, um, uh, any replacement of Scalia would make an, an impact on the court, both, not just because he was a vote, but because he was someone who was the constellation of ideas. And so that made an enormous difference. I was also interested in those people who've reported that Kennedy moved to the left in part in response to Scalia's rather uh, strident criticisms of things that he had done, notably in the gay marriage case, and that Kennedy was finally coming into his own, which is, yes, this is who I am. I don't know, others think that's true?
1: That's an an interesting suggestion. They might have been reacting to the dynamics. Larry, uh, Senator Klobuchar gets huge uh, points for predicting the chief's vote in the Affordable Care Act case. (laughs) She predicted that he would care about the institutional legitimacy of the court above his own ideological agenda. I had the honor of a long interview with him right when he was nominated, and he promised to do exactly that. He said he thought it was important in a polarized time for citizens not to perceive the court as five Republicans against four Democrats. And he pledged to put institutional legitimacy at the center of his decisions and said, I hope when people go back and look at my decisions, they'll see that I cared about institutional legitimacy more than ideological purity. Um, Obviously, he had mixed success in his first nearly decade on the court. What is your take on how effective he was in fulfilling his vision, and how effective might he be on a liberal court?
4: No, I, I think that's exactly right. And I was, I was going to reframe a little bit what Neil had said, because I don't think we see Justice, Chief Justice Roberts voting liberal. We see Chief Justice Roberts voting for the institution of the Supreme Court. And both he and Breyer, I think, have been the, bo- have been the two institutional players. And that is a critical role for the Supreme Court. Um, you know, I think people like Scalia didn't feel like that was his job. His job was to say what he thought was true. Um, and I'm not saying that institution players don't think, don't say what they think is true. I think what they think is that it's just as important to build and preserve the uh, authority and respectability of the institution than to get any particular case right. And I have enormous respect for that. I think I, I, am, with, uh, I, I am with the chief in believing that is his most important role.
2: Don't you it, think it's important really that, that both are there? That's,
4: that both he and that, bo- both,
2: yes. that You have that diversity of yeah. view about the role. I mean, it makes, it makes for so much more of a a better court, I it, think. It, it's a stronger that's right, court. That's right, although
4: you're right. It has to be both. It would be a terrifying court if it were filled with Scalia's. Oh. It would be an uninteresting court if it were filled with just Breyers and um, Chief Justice Roberts. Um, but this dynamic is critical. Now, what happens when it's a liberal court is going to be a hard thing for him because I, I do think he genuinely believes the conservative views which he advances. And when it's really put to the test systematically, of you know, wh- is he gonna push to the institution or to his views, I- I'm not sure how he plays that
6: out. I think this is giving, frankly, much too much credit to Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, with the exception of the Affordable Care Act cases, on virtually every single major ideological question, he has voted hardline right wing, whether it's affirmative action, whether it's abortion, whether it's gay rights, whether it's um, voting rights, whether it's, um, uh, campaign finance whether it's gun control
4: but that's a different point it's not whether he's voting conservative or not it's whether his vote draws the integrity of the institution into doubt and so the Affordable Care Act was the critical case because if these if a bunch of conservatives overturned what was perceived to be a Signal legislation of this liberal president or this Democratic president that would have been read as just a political act by the court But when you can be conservative and it's not necessarily read as a political act however skeptical You know we academics might be about it. I think that's where he gets to be conservative
3: and this is the line That I think he's demonstrating
6: I don't see any difference between the Affordable Care Act and any of the other issues I mentioned
3: well, one big difference is, of course, many of those were dissents and didn't have you know, the effect on the country. Yeah. So if the, justice, if the Chief Justice is in dissent in, for example, gay marriage, and saying, I'd let that stuff happen, he doesn't have any vote, he lost. So, you know, the question is... How about campaign finance and gun control? You've got two two issues. No, affirmative action he lost as well. So you've got two issues in which, you know, his vote has has been cast in a way that actually matters to people, and those are hugely significant, but uh, I don't think that 10 years ago during his confirmation hearing, the left would have predicted where we are now with the chief justice by any stretch.
1: Judge Gertner, uh, as a judge, do you think it is appropriate for a chief justice to take account institutional legitimacy rather than his view of the correct constitutional answer.
5: I, I think, I, I'm actually torn in this conversation. I'm, I'm more with Jeff, I think, than, than I am with Larry and Neil in the sense that uh, there have been an occasional uh, major case like the signature achievement of the Obama administration in which Roberts has played to the, uh, a different audience than otherwise but that there is nothing about his record other than that which suggests that that is regularly what he has been thinking of. I do think that institutional, you know, it's very interesting in watching the political uh, uh, presidential campaign today. I was thinking that of all the institutions of government in one sense, the Supreme Court actually now looks the best. Uh, I mean, and, and, and that institutional legitimacy may well be the most important thing to be, to be taken into account now that the, uh, you know, the sort of dispassionate Rendering of decisions, uh, th- th- keeping this institution away from this lunacy seems to be an awfully good thing. So I may, his, his, if he's concerned about institutional legitimacy now, that's not a bad thing. Also, I I have to take issue the notion that a co- this court is going to go liberal is it's always been a misnomer that that the court was had a liberal minority. The court had a moderate uh, minority. And uh, it is not, not clear to me that we can, that we are really talking about even a Hillary Clinton candidacy uh, proposing liberals. I just don't think that that would happen.
2: You know, I, first of all, I don't think courts move that quickly. They just don't overnight go from one thing to the next. And the second thing is, <clears throat> to a much lesser extent than Scalia, there are a little bit um, two Chief Justice Roberts there's the young robbers who worked in the Reagan administration, and if you read, and you know, we got a lot of his papers, he really hated the voting rights law. He thought it was an outrage. He really hates affirmative action. He really hated racial preferences of any kind. Um, those were his big uh, so core, issues, core right. issues back then that where he would object to the compromises that the Reagan administration was making, like signing the voting rights bill. Um, but I think that his model, and he said this privately and I think publicly, that his model is Chief Justice Hughes. Now, Hughes was, in fact, far more liberal than, I suppose, for his time than Roberts is for his, but Hughes was a person who was an institutionalist. And that is the person I think he seeks to modify himself after now. Whereas when you read those early memos, there, we're president, we can do anything we want. We should we shouldn't be dealing with this stuff.
1: That is it's an excellent point. Hughes is his modern hero, and his greatest hero of all is Chief Justice Marshall, the great chief. When we talked, he pointed to this portrait of Marshall over his fireplace and said obviously no one can be as great as Marshall, but Marshall was effective because he cared about the team dynamic. He persuaded his colleagues to live together in the same boarding house where they would drink (laughs) a Hogshead of Madeira and all the justices would get buzzed and all the cases were unanimous. (laughs) So that was his model, and he really loves this model, and it's much harder today, I think, than he expected, but that's where his heart is. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the run-of-show. We're going to have just a few questions. I'd say one, two, maybe three, and then we're going to transition to this crucial question, what will the Constitution look like under President Clinton or President Trump? What would a liberal Constitution look like? What would a conservative Constitution look like? And what is the future of the U.S.? Constitution. So just a few questions on oh. the Roberts court. Right. I gave you no warning. So if I can be a law professor and call on people, or else we can, <laughs> which is always dangerous. If you, you're sitting in the front row is a good place have to a be. Hander. Excellent. Yeah. We have a hand in the front row. And this one mic.
5: Thank you.
3: My, thank you. My name is Helen Meyer. I'm from Minnesota. Excellent. Shout out. Hooray. <laughs>
2: so is our Supreme Court too elitist? Great question. Is it too elitist? We, you know, we rejected the monarchy, and it seems that more and more,
0: the Supreme Court is occupied by the intellectual elites of
3: our country. And there, are,
1: is Can it I too elitist? Just note Chief Justice Roberts's excellent line on this. He said, "People say it's elitist because, uh, but that's really not uh, true at all. Uh, they, uh, some of the justices went to Yale."
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> if you um. You know, I I think it's important that the court have a lot of people from a lot of different backgrounds, Um, and it does have some of that. Uh, Justice Kennedy is probably the poorest person on the court now because he hasn't written a book. His only asset is is his house. Uh, But, you know, the, the background of Justice Thomas and Justice Sotomayor are very different from any sort of an elitist background. They went to Yale. Uh, but they ended up going to Yale because they were smart and very hardworking. and if you were going to have surgery, you would not want to go to somebody who'd gone to night medical school and just barely passed his medical boards, Uh, and if you want somebody to interpret the Constitution, you want smart people who have gone to good schools and, and do represent different points of view and We don't have enough diversity in those points of view, but not because of where they went to college or law school.
5: um, Let me just sort of offer an alternative model here. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, who's my senator, put together a a committee of uh, people to propose new nominees for the federal bench, the bench I was a part of. And her mantra to us was not just gender and race diversity and not just uh, good qualifications, but also diversity of experience that too often the federal bench was filled with uh, former prosecutors, big firm lawyers, and then as you get higher up, it's former prosecutors, big firm lawyers, who are also judges. And I think that there's something to be said about a court that looks, uh, that has politicians, there I go again, um, that has- Sandra Day uh, O'Connor. <laughs> right, that has people from different experiences and sp- different kinds of backgrounds. It, for sure, the law, the law sort of shapes is the filter through which those experiences are a go. There's no question about that, and that makes people of different positions sometimes come together. But it, it makes a big difference. If you read Thurgood Marshall's dissent sometimes, you get a sense of someone who's bringing to bear, uh, when, you know, when you talk about race, let me tell you about race, and Sotomayor is getting to that point as well. Uh, I think that different experiences matter, and I also think, even though I am Yale, that there are many fabulous law schools in between, you know, Joseph's School, Night School, and Yale um, that can best, that can occupy the court. So I, I think diversity of experience is really important.
1: Wonderful. One more question, and then we're gonna to move to the future of the Constitution. Yes, toward the back there. <laughs> Run, you've gotta get exercise if you wanna oh. care about the Constitution. It's not for the faint-hearted. Excellent job. Thank you. Are you okay? Good. Hi. Hi.
5: Um, so speaking of Yale, um, are there any free speech cases that are in the pipeline or that might come up to the Supreme Court that might be decided differently depending on, depending on who ends up on the court or that you'd like to speak about in any way?
6: Excellent
1: question. Jeff Stone is the expert. He's been talking about this. What is the answer?
6: Well, I, I think the most fundamental questions have to do with campaign finance reform and, and, and whether, the, whether a different court um, would adhere to the Citizens United and, and the subsequent decisions. Um, and I'm reasonably confident that they would not. That doesn't mean they directly overrule Citizens United, at least not quickly. But I suspect that they would begin interpreting those opinions narrowly. Um, so that's one area where I think one would see a significant change. Um, other than that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Roberts Court has been uh, fairly broadly protective of free speech in a way that's quite surprising. Um, But one area in which I think, again, a more liberal court might begin uh, withdrawing is the extreme protection of commercial speech that the Roberts court has um, uh, recognized uh, over the dissents, almost invariably, of the more liberal justices, thinking that the court's gone too far in protecting corporate and commercial Uh, expression. So I could see that as an area where if those cases arose, the court might withdraw again, although I don't think they'd overrule major decisions, but they'd begin interpreting them more narrowly.
3: And and just to answer your question, is there anything in the pipeline coming up uh, on free speech? And the answer is no. And the answer is no for the reason, just to pick up something that Senator Klobuchar said, which is the eight justice court has meant that they're not taking anything really of any True, you know, of any serious national importance or or very few cases. So, all of these really important issues that the court's been asked to hear over the last several months, they said, We're not hearing it, we're not hearing it, we're not hearing it. They get about 10,000 requests a year, usually hear 67 cases or so. This year it's already far below that, and certainly nothing in the free speech area.
1: Great. Well, this is a good transition to our final round, which raises really, I think, one of the most compelling issues before the country in this election, which is, what is our Constitution going to look like for decades to come? And for many elections, both sides have been warning that this is a pivotal one, but this time everyone agrees the future of the Constitution will be determined by the election. So in a completely nonpartisan way, as the head of the Nonpartisan Constitution Center, I can tell you, cast your vote for president. Uh, based on the candidate whose views of the Constitution best coincide with your own, because that is what the election's gonna determine. I want our dream team of panelists to imagine what the Constitution might look like if Senator Clinton wins. We have not had a liberal court, at least since the 1960s and early 70s, and everything that most of us here learned in law school could be transformed by the addition of a single justice. In, uh, the Constitution Center has a great collaboration with The Atlantic, where we're publishing pieces about what the future of the Constitution will look like. Erwin Chemerinsky wrote a piece saying that a liberal justice would likely uphold gun sales, strike down laws that burden abortion rights, uphold race as a factor in university admission, open access to the courts, expand congressional power, narrow the interpretation of the Establishment Clause to strike down religious prayers. Those are just some of his examples. But Larry, you are you know, a constitutional visionary, if you just think as broadly uh, and boldly as possible, imagine it's the year 2020 and we have a liberal court that's been up and running for 20 years. How might the, uh, for, for, you know, for five, five years or so, how might the constitution look different around a range of areas?
4: Well, I've been stuck on one issue for a decade and I can't get beyond it. So let me start with that, which is the issue of uh, the corruption of our uh, government, I think, by that, I mean Congress. Um, so campaign finance will be, I think, the most important uh, possible change. I actually think the change will not be the fundamental one, um, reversing Buckley or reversing Citizens United. There's a smaller change, which I think could be just as important, and that is for the court to finally address the question whether super PACs are constitutionally mandated. This is a subtlety that is you know, kind of law geek uh, subtlety. But it's an important difference, because the decision that created the super PACs was a DC circuit opinion. The Supreme Court never reviewed it. And it's completely open, and I think might be the right decision for the court to make, to say, in fact, there's no constitutional need for super PACs. Congress can limit super PACs. But what it can't do is limit the ability of people to spend money on their own, because the super PAC coordination issue is exactly the dynamic which the senator was describing, and I think that is the corrupting dynamic. But I think the other important point to flag to lay on the ground here is um, we obsess about the Supreme Court way too much when we talk about the problem of the corrupting influence of money in our government. Um, the solution to that problem won't happen if we overturn Citizens United. Um, you know, it's not like on January 20th, 2010, we had a healthy democracy. Right? Uh, um, the Supreme Court may have shot the body, but the body was already cold, right? The democracy <laughs> had already been corrupted by exactly the dynamic that the senator says she wants to go back to the good days of, where all she did was have to spend her time calling people getting $5,000 contributions or $1,000 contributions, as if that were the good days. Those are terrible days. That is a terrible system. And what's so striking about this election cycle is that for the first time, maybe forever, The two leading Democratic candidates have expressly endorsed the idea of small-dollar public funding of elections. The two leading candidates have, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders were in in an Iowa session where she said she would introduce that in the first 100 days, and Bernie said maybe in the long term. So she is on the record being even stronger about public funding of congressional elections. Um, The House of Representatives has gone far in endorsing the very same idea, Only the Senate Democrats have, in their latest out, you know, description of what reform is, refused to endorse that, which I think is a a terrible thing. What we need is to recognize the court may have made the problem worse, but the view of what a great constitution in 2020 would look like is a constitution supported by an institution of Congress we could actually believe was not corrupted in the way that we now believe
1: it is deeply corrupted by money. A powerful vision. Jeff Stone, you have been an advocate for a liberal constitution for decades. It's the year 2020. Imagine the addition of one or two or three liberal justices. What are some big areas of the Constitution that would look different than they do now?
6: Well, I guess I'd make three points. First thing, it's important to to recognize that it's now been 45 years plus um, that we've had a Supreme Court that's been dominated by Republican-appointed nominees. That is, the last time we've had a majority of justices who were appointed by Democratic presidents was basically when Richard Nixon was elected. Um, and that's number one. Number two is, as Nancy said earlier, we don't even know what a liberal justice is anymore. Uh, what we call liberal justices today are not liberal justices. They're not like William Douglas or William Brennan or Thurgood Marshall or um, uh, Uh, Arthur Goldberg or Abe Fortas, none of them is a liberal justice. These are very moderate liberals, every one of them. Um, So even if we added a fifth, say Merrick Garland, um, they'd still be a very moderate liberal court. So it's hard to imagine what a liberal court would be, because we haven't even thought about that for half a century. Uh, The third thing I'd say is that because of the fact that the court's been dominated for so long by conservatives, um, almost all we could imagine a more liberal court doing is overturning the decisions of th- those justices. So what we can imagine is overturning some of the campaign finance decisions, overturning um, the gun control decisions, overturning the decisions holding affirmative action unconstitutional, um, overturning the Voting Rights Act decisions. And what's interesting about this is we used to think of conservatives as people who believed in judicial restraint. But almost every decision that's today regarded as conservative that needs to be overturned was an activist decision of these justices, holding all sorts of things unconstitutional because they were inconsistent with a conservative agenda. So basically what I would say is what's easy to imagine is a court that would begin to chip away and, over time, overrule some of these very conservative decisions. What's almost impossible to imagine is what a liberal court would do in the kind of Warren Court vein. That is, what would they reach out to hold on constitutional? The only real example we have of this court doing that is probably in the area of gay rights. Um, and those were, of course, five-four decisions. But those were activist, judicial, liberal decisions. Um, and we could imagine a lot of that in the future with a really liberal court, but I don't know anybody has been able to figure out what that would be.
1: Well, that, we've got just a few more minutes to try to imagine it. So Nina, you said that Hillary Clinton might appoint a liberal William O. Douglas, any you know, nominees about who that would be, and what would the consequences be?
2: Well, if you compare the, the courts of, let's say, 50 years ago, returning to the question of experience, we had, for example, Earl Warren had been the attorney general and the most popular governor in the history of California, to the point that nobody ran against him at one point. Uh, we had William O. Douglas, who'd been the architect of the nation's security laws. We had people you never heard of who were senators. We had people you never heard of who were very distinguished judges. We had Thurgood Marshall, who was the architect of the battle on civil rights. I mean, when you look at that court, Uh, and the courts before it. It had nobodies who were very smart people or not, and we had people who were incredible somebodies, but we have this sort of, I think it's a strange fiction now that the only way you can be a good Supreme Court justice is to have been a judge, and we're getting a sort of a, a European model of judging, that you come up through the ranks that way, and I hope personally, that Hillary Clinton appoints somebody who's not a judge. But I don't expect that she will appoint William O. Douglas or somebody like that, because we live in an incredibly divided world, uh, political world, and no matter what, she has to get that person through the Senate.
1: Nancy, if the Senate went Democratic, why couldn't Hillary Clinton appoint Elizabeth Warren and the Democrats blow up the filibuster rule and confirm her?
5: Uh, she could, Uh, or Obama was the other one that one would imagine. Or President Obama. Or President Obama. Um, uh, That would be interesting, but I want to get back to very interesting. I also would put my name in, I want you to know, but that's another issue. Um,
1: <laughs> so, so noted. Right,
5: way too old. Uh, uh, but
1: Hillary, Hillary Clinton is watching the live feed of the astronaut <laughs> guest festival, so You're I'm sure. Judge.
5: Yeah. But I do think that the, um, uh, the, I mean, there's an interesting question along the lines of what Jeff was talking about, which is given the, the, the complex of the court over the, these years, mm-hmm. advocacy has changed, so liberal groups will not be, except for the gay marriage stuff, liberal groups for the most part were avoiding the Supreme Court. So the issues of what the left would be bringing to the court, we we really haven't seen that because advocacy has changed. And so in a more liberal court that was more responsive to discrimination issues, to uh, women's rights issues, to uh, abortion issues, you may see the court being asked more it's been the, the left uh, advocacy community has been in a defensive posture for the most part. In addition, a more liberal court has a, an effect that nobody ever talks about, which is the effect on the lower federal courts. Uh, as I said, I was a district court judge and I, and I was living in a 5-4 universe. So many decisions about which I cared were 5-4 decisions of the Supreme Court. And what I and others began to see was that even moderate to liberal judges would be anticipating the rightward movement of the court and the lower court decisions were likewise much more conservative than they otherwise would have been. I'm not going to rule X way because that is likely to be thrown out. I didn't follow that mantra ever, but that's another issue. Um, And so to some degree, a more liberal court would also privilege more liberal decisions in the lower federal courts, the district courts and the Court of Appeals. I would love to see a court, and this would actually be something that Elizabeth Warren might be interested in, something we never talk about because it's really not remotely sexy, is the access to justice decisions of the court. All of the procedural rules that the court, liberals and conservatives on the courts have affirmed that have essentially enabled Uh, uh, the dismissal of civil rights cases at a higher rate than we have ever seen before, a huge number of uh, uh, important decision being deferred to private arbitration and private decision making, which is not precedential, access to justice issues, perhaps a different court that had been civil rights litigators would care about. That would make a difference. But I agree with, with Jeff that there's an incredible inertia to a court, we call that precedent, And so that the next generation of the court will be slowly, and we'd want it that way, actually. We don't want the kind of swings that that you would otherwise see. That inertia will mean a sort of incremental change no matter who's on the next Supreme Court.
1: Neil, last word. On the liberal court, President Obama's appointed lots of very able progressives like Nina Pillard on the D.C. Circuit. Imagine two or three of those appointments. What are the big areas of constitutional law that look different in 2020?
3: So I think the first thing to say about it is it's not actually a constitutional law that looks that different as much as the, the lion's share of what the Supreme Court does, which is statutory law. So 90%, you know, a huge number of important things are statutory, not constitutional. A lot of stuff that the senator was talking about, the immigration cases, not constitutional. Uh, environmental protection, uh, you you know, uh, labor, employment, protection of women, uh, privacy, uh, you know, patents and technology, all this stuff is lion's share of what the courts does and it's not actually susceptible, you know, to constitutional interpretation. So, you know, what happens there, I think, is an interesting thing. Now, there's some things that our liberals want that I think, regardless of what happens uh, with the Supreme Court, they're gonna get. So here's a good example, the death penalty. I think that on the current composition of the court, that, uh, you know, you bring me a case and we can win that the death penalty is unconstitutional with the current eight member, just, eight members of the court, Justice Kennedy, siding with those who uh, were appointed by Democratic presidents as cruel and unusual punishment and violation of the Constitution. I think that is totally feasible right now regardless. Now what else might we see happening? Well, I think privacy is a really interesting one. Uh, and, you know, that's one in which the court is uh, really struggling with, you know, how do we? think about new technologies and so on. So far, the court's issued some unanimous decisions in this area, but I think over the next 15 to 20 years, we are going to see a robust, massive debate break out in the Supreme Court about when we turn information over to third parties, for example, do we lose any expectation of privacy in it?
1: Fascinating. We have a great intervention from Senator Klobuchar, so let's come on, come on down, absolutely.
7: <laughs> um, I just wanted to two things. Uh, Number one, I really don't love raising $5,000 a person. Um, And there is a great campaign finance law that I support of Senator Durbin's and others that we have in Minnesota uh, that really evens the playing field, so you don't even have to do that with public financing. I'm just being pragmatic uh, with what's happening. And then there's one other thing I wanted to, way early on, if you rewind, uh, when uh, Professor Stone was talking about what the Senate would do if Hillary Clinton won, and I think I was more where Nina was on this, is that if Hillary Clinton wins, or even before she wins in the fall, if the Republicans allow hearings and a vote before the next president comes in on Merrick Garland, that will happen. Like No one is going to say, oh no, Hillary Clinton won now, so we don't want to have our hearings anymore after we had a hashtag do your job all year politically. And I just want to be clear that that vote will happen and those hearings will happen. I don't know who she would nominate, but during the lame duck, if they agree to do the hearings, we will have the hearings.
1: Great. Thank you very much for that. Um, we, Why don't we have some questions? Because there are lots They can be about the you future of the... You didn't about Trump. Well, you, okay, you're right. You know what? That was a total violation of the nonpartisan mandate of the <laughs> National Constitution Center. Thank you, Nina. You're fired. You the reason that. That I, thank you for doing that. The reason I didn't is because we've had a... A conservative court, but you're absolutely right, Larry. If President Trump wins, we could have not only a replacement for Justice Scalia that would keep the current balance of the court, but a court that swings much further to the right. What would a Trump court look like? It's the year 2020. What areas of the law would be different? Larry Lessig. Thank you, Nina. I appreciate
4: that. I thought there was a perfectly good nonpartisan reason not to take up this question because huh. there's no sensible, plausible way to understand what the answer could be, right <laughs> I mean he I mean he, I mean this is just not where he's been, not where he's spoken seriously. He floated a bunch of names, which was more to 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 make. Uh, senators happy than it was to be serious about anything. I don't understand what his serious philosophy would be.
1: Here. Well, he let's just, let's just ima- let's imagine for the sake of nonpartisan argument that he appoints some of the judges on that list who are familiar to conservative uh, people and were, well, were embraced by the Republican establishment.
4: Well,
5: what, what,
1: imagine when- that we had those judges. What would the Constitution look like in 2020? Well, even there, there's a
4: conflict between Trump and those judges, right? I mean, Trump has a view of the executive power, that you know, maybe Scalia would have been interested in that view of the executive power, but, but, but it's not really a conservative view of the executive power. Um, I, you know, so I, I think that there's a, those judges, many of those judges, not, you know I, I, I disagree with many of them, but I think they're serious, they're serious jurists. Uh, and the serious jurists um, have a lot of places where they're gonna run against what uh, Trump would be. Well,
2: also, a funny thing happened on the way to modern history. <laughs> when I was a younger reporter, and I'm still very young, um, but when I was a younger reporter, most of the conservatives were for executive power, very strong executive power, Cheney-esque executive power. And then they started losing the presidency, eight years of Clinton, okay, that eight, eight, eight years of Bush, but there were a lot, some things there that troubled even that court, uh, and then eight years of Obama, and, uh, and you add those up, I do, and you have somebody who's not particularly appealing, as far as I can tell, to a great many conservatives. And on the question of executive power, I think he'd have a pretty hostile court. On anything else, all bets are off. On on the social issues, on uh, agency power, regulation, all of that, all bets are off. Uh, But courts do tend to move more slowly than people realize. When Sandra Day O'Connor retired and was replaced by somebody who disagreed with her on many, many issues, it made a huge, huge difference in many, many instances. But it didn't prevent same-sex marriage from becoming legal. It didn't prevent now the knocking down of the biggest restrictions on abortion. So nothing moves as fast as people expect.
6: If you imagine two new justices like Alito, one replacing Scalia, one replacing one of the liberals, or Kennedy, then I think within five years, you would have Roe v. Wade overruled, you would have affirmative action declared per se unconstitutional. Might well. Right. Those are two, I think, that are absolutely going to happen if, there, there, if, on that scenario.
4: There is one interesting place, though, for Trump. Again, there's two Trumps. Right? The early Trump, uh, like August, September, the anti-Super PAC, <laughs> the anti-Super PAC Trump. The guy who said he thought super PACs were outrageous, that we should, um, you know, where would he be on Citizens United? Um, I, and then there's the current Trump, of course, who's welcomed $100 million super PACs. So this later Trump doesn't seem to have much trouble with it. But on, on, you know, again, this is the way of saying, it's, un, it's not even clear who he is, what, what, what the positions would be.
1: Nancy, one interesting strain we're hearing is one that uh, has also been uh, reported, which is that there are libertarian, Uh, scholars, from Richard Epstein to Randy Barnett, who say that a President Trump would threaten constitutional values and uh, exceed executive power. Do you agree that Trump's own appointees might challenge a President Trump on executive power?
5: I I really uh, uh, agree more with Larry that I don't think we know. I just, in preparation for this, I just sort of looked at one name on his list, which of course was William Pryor. uh, uh, who called Roe v. Wade the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law, who supported Judge Moore's efforts to display the Ten Commandments, who said that the second worst constitutional decision was Miranda. Uh, uh, so, who knows? I mean, if he's on the list, uh, then we, uh, he's on the list and uh, President Trump gets two of him, who knows what would happen?
1: Neil, last word on the Trump court. Well, you know,
3: uh, I'll be deported, so it's your country, man. Enjoy <laughs> it.
1: Nice <job>. that, that, <laughs>
3: we're,
1: we're really going to miss you at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> I got till January 20th, man. It's fine, November's all that matters.
2: Maybe Maybe some president, you'll be, you know, your kids are American citizens, but you can come out of the shadows later.
1: (laughs) All right, nice dodge. Uh, 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 Questions from the audience about anything, uh, uh, and if you want to ask about the Constitution, we have it waiting to uh, answer your questions. Yes, sir. What about gerrymandering? We haven't I mean this was Baker and Carr and the liberal court at the state level, and now we've got this complete mess.
6: My name is Don
1: Baker from Washington, D.C. let me repeat this excellent question. The gentleman asks, What about gerrymandering? And he points to gerrymandering, remember, is when voting districts are drawn in ways that guarantee the election of Republicans or Democrats because the legislators know exactly who the voters are. The Supreme Court so far has said. We're not going to strike down anything as unconstitutional gerrymandering, but come back to us. Maybe we'll change our mind in the future. That's what Justice Kennedy has said. Could you imagine, Larry, a liberal court actually striking down gerrymandering?
4: Yeah, I think they're on their way to political gerrymandering being a justiciable issue. Um, I wish Congress would do it more directly. Congress has the power, under Article I, Section 4, to deal with its own... Districts, and it could solve gerrymandering tomorrow if it wanted to. Of course, it doesn't want to because it plays into exactly the political infrastructure of the existing system. But that, that, that I think is the solution to gerrymandering. But the court, I think, will get to a place where we could be litigating it. And in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and North Carolina, that would be incredibly important to be able to challenge
1: those on
4: political gerrymandering grounds.
1: Fascinating. Great. Yes, ma'am. Uh, sort of toward the. Oh, the poor, I'm so sorry. We have just one mic, and I would leap out if I could, but.
0: Hi, my name is Nia Evans, and I'm coming from the National Women's Law Center. Many of you teach and have students. So my question is, do you see any generational differences in the way that your students are approaching the law and interpreting the law compared to your interpretations, general interpretations? How are you seeing millennial lawyers bringing new ideologies, new approaches, and new visions to the work? So,
3: so I think one thing that I see is a real lack of faith in the court and how it resolves things and how important it is. Just to give you one example, my very first argument was against the Bush administration on Guantanamo and I was scared out of my mind and uh, to do the argument and I remember sitting in the courtroom after listening to the decision coming down and it's 180 pages long, Justice Stevens saying we won, uh, that the Guantanamo tribunals were getting struck down and we went out to the media and like everyone's asking what does it mean, there's thousands of reporters on the hundreds of reporters on the plaza steps, saying, you know, what does it mean? And, you know, the decision is so long, we had no time to review it, <laughs> but I, here's what I said to them. I said, you know, here's what happened today. The lowest of the low, this man who was accused of being bin, Osama bin Laden's driver, uh, sues someone, not just anyone, but the nation's most powerful man, the world's most powerful man, the President of the United States, and not in some lower court, but in the highest court of the land, the Supreme Court of the United States, and he wins. That's something remarkable about this country. In other countries, Mr. Hamdan, my client, would have been shot for bringing his case. More to the point, his lawyer would have been shot. Um, But but that's what makes America special. And you know, it reminded me of what the Chief Justice said at his confirmation hearings, which was the great thing about the Supreme Court is on the one side, you can have uh, the fancy corporation and all their law firms and law books piled up high. And on the other side of the courtroom, you've got the little guy with none of that. But if the little guy has a good argument, sometimes he wins. That we've lost, that view of the court. But it is still there. It still happens. And I think it's important on all of us to remember that's the role of the court.
5: One of the things that I that I saw was the uh, students who knew that I had had a background in employment discrimination work would come in and talk to me and say, you know, I came to law school thinking that I would be a discrimination lawyer. But in the courses that I've been taught, all I've been taught is how how many impediments there are to anybody winning, all of the procedural pitfalls, all of the, all of the ways in which people lose, and I've lost faith in the area of the law. That's what we have to undo. The constitutional cases are quite remarkable, and they certainly make possible this mythology of the court as the last bastion of rights. Uh, but it seems to me, and this may be something that a new court would do, we have to open up the court in other ways as well, so that people could can envision candidly the kind of career that I had, the kind of career that my husband John Reinstein had, where you went into court uh, for the purpose of vindicating rights, and judges would deal with what you, what you brought to them in a substantive way, rather than a thousand ways of dismissing the case.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, Aspen deep dives, like Supreme Court oral arguments, must end on time. So wait, first your homework. Read a Supreme Court opinion, go to supremecourt.gov, read the majority, read the dissent, and make up your mind, and or go to constitutioncenter.org, click on any part of the Constitution, hear what the best liberals and conservatives have to say about what they agree and disagree, and then make up your own mind. What was so great about this session is it reminds us that the Constitution is indeed At stake, the election will determine its future. It belongs to all of us. You've heard how important it is. So go vote, and please join me in thanking our panelists.
0: Today's show was edited by David Stotts and produced by yours truly. Research was provided by Josh Weinberg, Lana Ulrich, and Tom Donnelly. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen, who will return next week. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on our Facebook page, facebook.com constitutionctr, and on our Twitter feed, twitter.com constitutionctr. Please subscribe to We the People on iTunes. While you're in the iTunes store, leave us a rating and review. It helps other people discover what we do. Please also subscribe to Live at America's Town Hall featuring conversations and debates presented here at the Center, across from Independence Hall in Philadelphia. We the people is a member of Slate’s Panoply Network, check out our sibling podcasts at itunes.com/panoply. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Nakhondra Yanachi.